This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello. Today on the Loopcast, I have Samantha Kuttner the author of Swiping Right, The Allure of Hypermasculinity and Crypto-Fascism for Men Who Joined the Proud Boys. So uh, Samantha, is she received her bachelor's degree in psychology and master's degree in communication studies. She studies violent extremism and the gender dynamics of radicalization. And her research with the Proud Boys, uh, she does ethnographic research. And if you follow her on Twitter, she does this like really cool OSINT tracking project of Proud Boy incidents, which we're going to get into the show. Um, And so the reason that we wanted to do the show is we've been trying to find ways here at the Loopcast to tackle some of the political changes that have happened post-2016. So um, we think like the ideas of white nationalism, white supremacy have been sort of covered a lot. So you like people like Richard Spencer, they received a lot of coverage, a lot of in-depth and meaningful coverage, I should say. But a lot of like the ideologies and groups that have come and emerged since 2016 and have emerged onto the political scene and into um, political activism and action, um, there hasn't been a lot of deep dives and we kind of wanted to fill in that gap. So we, uh, a couple, a few months ago, we did a show with Jade Parker on accelerationism. Next month, we will be doing a show on the Boogaloo and sort of that movement, that part of the militia movement and that um, sort of set of actors. But today with Samantha, we're going to focus on the Proud Boys. So please welcome Samantha. How's it going? Good, good. Awesome, awesome. So I want to maybe start off with like a very basic question, which is who are the Proud Boys? I think... Um, if you're on Twitter, you've kind of heard about them. If you've sort of paid attention to certain, you know, newspaper articles, you've heard about them. But like when we talk about them as sort of at a deeper level, who are the Proud Boys? Well, the Proud Boys are a violent crypto fascist extremist organization. They were founded in 2016 during Trump's presidential campaign. Um, they weren't incredibly well known until um, some of the members were present at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. And they're very unique in that they can pull many people from the mainstream to the fringes by reframing their extremism as an assertion of their masculinity. So a large part of their founding was through a guy named Gavin McInnes, so I think um, for those of us who follow media, um, he was one of the founders of Vice. But who is Gavin in relation to uh, the Proud Boys? Gavin's been described as more or less the men's rights subreddit manifested in human form. He, uh, he is one of their... Uh, I guess you could call him a techno-parent of sorts. Um, you know, your, your angry father that's like, oh, well, back in my day, you know, we had this and we have that, right? Um, but he, he's a 
known provocateur that has grown increasingly more openly ethno-nationalist, openly uh, more racist. Uh, and because of his familiarity, uh, like people, Proud who joined were very familiar with his content. They saw him as, as more of a comedian than anything else. Um, and so when he founded the Proud Boys, many were already on board um, because he had such a strong media presence to begin with. So I do find your, the way that you approach research, and we're going to sort of get deeper later in the show on this, but <clears throat> as a general sort of approach, how do you research the Proud Boys? How, how do you sort of, as, a, as an academic researcher and as an analyst, how do you approach like digging deeper into the group without sort of, well, I, let me just start there. How do you dig deeper into the group? And, and sort of understand their ideology, their membership yeah. process, and stuff like that? Um, so I came to know the Proud Boys um, after seeing a student at my university become kind of the poster child for the Unite the Right rally. Uh, and I noticed this group was backtracking from their involvement and saying the members who joined weren't really members the group was just a misunderstood fraternal drinking organization and the media had them all wrong. Um, so I'm willing to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. And I, I was like, okay, so, so what are you guys really? Like, is there a discrepancy between who you are and how you're being portrayed? Or is it fairly accurate? Um, so one of the biggest obstacles to conducting scholarly research on the Proud Boys is access. Um, I believe my, my wonderful friend and research peer, C.V. Vitolo Haddad and I are like the only two people in the country who were approved by our review boards to study this group, uh, and conduct ethnogra uh, ethnographic research before their accounts were suspended from, uh, social media platforms. Um, and I feel the, the reason I was granted access was the way that I approached them. You, you can't really go to a group and be like, hey, fascist, tell me about your fascist belief system. Um, they'll just, you know, either write you off as media or a journalist conducting a hit piece, or, um, you know, they'll try to harass you to, to stop your efforts to, to do that. And I really didn't want to come at that angle. Um, so I borrowed from my research when I was a writing center consultant. Um, when I worked in my writing center, we understood that writing center consultants couldn't act as therapists or counselors in any way, and nor should they. Um, but there were certain things that they could benefit from, um, from specifically uh, a man named Carl Rogers, uh, who founded Rogerian Therapy. Uh, and one of the biggest things that we focused on were uh, non-directiveness and active listening. Um, so instead of asking somebody a question and expecting a response or wanting them to respond a certain way, 
you let them speak more, you let them tell you more about themselves and um, you're, you take an empathetic approach to it. Um, so when I started, when I started uh, my research with Proud Boys, I was very transparent about who I was um, and that I was a researcher looking to understand the group better. Um, and I think that that granted me more access than most because um, they were afraid of being, you know, uh, doxxed or people misleading them about what they were about. Um, so if I was, you know, just very direct and, uh, and said, this is what I'm looking for, you know, here's what I'll ask. Um, and then, you know, through the IRB process, you give them informed consent. So they know going in what they're getting, there's not going to be, you know, gotcha moments. Um, um, so I think that they responded to that. So the, the beginning of the methodology in terms of reaching out and data collection was using um, an empathetic approach to listening and, you know, full transparency in regard to who I was as uh, a researcher. Um, when it came to the analysis section, uh, I decided to use grounded theory because there was so little information about the group. Um, instead of trying to apply uh, or test a hypothesis, I wanted to let themes and patterns emerge from the data. So I interviewed members, collected the data, and then grouped things into broader categories and then condensed those a little bit further. Um, so that's been how I kind of went about uh, my approach to research. And because it's ethnographic interviews, it's not just one-on-one um, -on -one extended interviews with members, but like really getting immersed in their environment and understanding how they see the world. Um, it, it gave me a lot of options in terms of the analysis I wanted to conduct and, and what I really wanted to say. With awesome. Um, so let's, let's dive into the Proud Boys. Um, so when the Proud Boys are a group, so one assumes there's a degree of membership, there is you know, you're either a proud boy or you're not. So sort of describe the membership process for us. What is, what does it take to sort of join an organization like this? Sure. Um, so the first step is stating the proud boys creed. Uh, a member creates a video where they say, I'm a proud Western chauvinist who refuses to apologize for creating the modern world. And that's their first way in. Uh, the second degree of membership involves uh, basically a gang style initiation. Um, members punch uh, a hopeful member until he can name five breakfast cereals. And when that is done, he becomes a member that is granted access to meetings and other events the Proud Boys are hosting. The third degree is getting a tattoo with a Proud Boys slogan or symbol, whether it's the laurel or the rooster or proud of your boy, um, just to further signify your membership. And the fourth degree involves getting into a fight and getting arrested for the cause. And members have kind of liberally interpreted that to mean aggressively targeting people. Interesting. So um, 
who would you say is a typical proud boy? And um, so I, I think like in, in most groups, people have this image. So the KKK, people have this image of white, of white people or of, you know, of ISIS. They have the particular image of who is an ISIS fighter or whatever. But when it comes to the proud boys, is there a typical proud boy? You know, is there a sort of typical like, um, sort of person you would consider a proud boy or is it, or this organization kind of transcends race and really focuses on masculinity and, and sort of that, that gender. Um, so some of the sources of identity for proud boys. Um, I, I mean, I know the concept of a multiracial white supremacist organization is uh, incredibly <laughs> complex to grapple with. Um, but I'll, I'll share a part of uh, an upcoming article I wrote for Georgetown's Journal of International Affairs, which kind of highlights how Proud Boys transcend race through identifying with the West. Um, but first, I'll start with victimhood. So most people understand that actions have consequences and that they're responsible for their own behavior. But through the red pill, which is in this case, adopting the belief or opening your eyes to the reality of male subjugation by women under feminism, proud boys get to choose this new reality that frees them from personal responsibility. And uh, because they're so disconnected from reality, they deem the consequences of their actions as something that's oppressing them. Um, For example, Gavin McGinnis for decades has celebrated violence and, and called for it against others. Uh, when his neighbors in upstate New York posted signs that said hate has no home here, he attempted to sue them and embrace this role of being a victim without ever considering, you know, if you're cruel, it just follows that most of society is going to ostracize you. And that's not evidence of his victimhood. It's just a refusal for him to accept responsibility. And that's the common thread in how many of the men identify as proud boys. And it's what makes Gavin McGinnis an excellent provocateur as well. The belief that the rules don't universally apply to him, coupled with this really strong sense of victimhood. And when it comes to um, transcending race through identifying with the West, West or Western is a crypto-fascist term for white or white culture. But, you know, what is white? really. Like in America, there's no unifying cultural identity of whiteness. There's only culturally normative psychopathy coupled with aggrieved male entitlement. And this is how Proud Boys form a kinship around some of the most destructive elements in American culture. That's interesting. So from victimhood, what are the other parts of their identity? Because I think when I was reading through your paper, I found it kind of interesting that as far as I understood it, so please correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, the reliance on victimhood comes from this idea of uncertainty in society and sort of this uncertainty of, of identity. But you know, what else, what else is like sort of building up this, like what is the underlying infrastructure of this victimhood that, um, some of these proud boys or the, the, the identity of the proud boys feel? 
So the sense of victimhood comes from the cognitive distortions of the red pill. Uh, the red pill, again, it's the belief or opening your eyes like Neo did in the matrix to uh, the reality that men are subjugated by women under feminism. Um, so probably they, they fight to prevent what they perceive to be the extinction of Western culture, but they're really fighting against their own sense of precarity, uh, like a sense of not knowing what their place is in the world. And um, once you embrace that, that conspiratorial notion that it is feminism that is ruining your life, um, you can really convert any interaction into evidence of your own victimhood. That's kind of interesting. So, um, so I want to maybe, so this is very much like, you know, they play on this idea of masculinity and hypermasculinity or whatever, but um, how do, how does this come to play and how the com- Proud Boys communicate and recruit? So like when they, when, when we see them communicating through Twitter or through Facebook or whatever, how do they, what is their sort of external communication style? Well, one of their biggest things is deliberate provocation, which feeds directly into their victim narratives. So they will go to an event wearing antagonistic slogans like Pinochet did nothing wrong or uh, feminist tears. And they will look for interactions where they can trigger people into starting a fight with them. And sometimes they'll seek out those fights themselves. Um, But then they will go back and selectively edit videos to frame themselves as the victim of the situation. And so this is consistent with that red pill belief that they are victims under feminism. Um, But it's also a way to recruit members who aren't familiar with the group and are likely to like see their plight as uh, like, well, this isn't right. They're just championing free speech. You know, I want to learn more about them. How can I get involved? Um, So it's, it's a recruitment strategy. It's, it's consistent with their worldview and um, it, it's, really infuriating to deal with. Uh, And a lot of people who get triggered because they care, (laughs) you know, they care about other human beings, um, wind up getting turned into kind of the liberal straw men and the recruitment fodder for them. So if somebody gets upset because they care about people and a, a proud boy is deliberately trying to trigger them by cruel language terms, uh, slogans, then like they get emotional. And then the proud boys say, look at these overly emotional social justice warriors. You know, we're here defending free speech. Come to us. Um, so they're very conscious of their manipulations and they really pull from deliberate provo- uh, provocation. The other communication style is DARVO. It comes from the field of intimate partner violence 
and it stands for deny, attack, reverse, victim, and offender. So it kind of goes hand in hand with the deliberate provo uh, provocation. Um, they can go to an event looking for trouble, get into trouble, and then frame themselves as the victim and frame the other side as the aggressor when they are going into spaces where they know they're not welcome and dealing with the consequences of that. Um, so those are some big, uh, some of their biggest ways to, um, that they communicate, which is really a reflection of the, like their world. Because if you believe that you're a victim and you believe you need to like invert this red pill paradigm and dominate women and everyone who makes you so, uh, like feel kind of small, um, you're going to engage in, in behavior that is um, just horrifically antisocial and, and violent. So um, it really just sounds like they're kind of trolling. So you kind of touched on, and maybe I want you to kind of elaborate. So this is occurring in real life, right? So this isn't just Twitter trolling or Facebook trolling. This is literally they're engaging in a, in physical spaces. They're going to talks, they're going to protests. There, there's an actual physical involvement for this provocation. Is that correct? That's correct. And just trolling just for the lulls, just joking. That's part of the, the crypto fascist strategy that they use to further their agenda. Um, and that's, that's consistent with their, their worldview and their ideology as well. Um, but these are, it's not just words, it's not just rhetoric. Um, the, the former founder, uh, the founder of the Proud Boys has repeatedly celebrated and encouraged violence among members. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with a woman named uh, Juliet Jeske, but she's tirelessly cataloged instances of Gavin McGinnis calling for, for violence against others, you know, saying things like choke a tranny. Um, terrible, terrible terms, you know, and, and that, that is not a term I would ever use um, to describe members of the transgender community, but this is how they use their dehumanizing language against others. So you, you've kind of touched on, and I kind of want to explore this, but what is the role of violence in not only the Proud Boys forming an identity, but violence as like it, it, on one on one level, it almost seems rhetoric or rhetorical, but then you kind of, you know, you go through sort of what they've been doing like in physical spaces. And it almost seems like physical violence is very much part of their identity and like group and sort of like not mass violence, but sort of like, you know, going out and trying to find a fist fight or an altercation or a provocation um, is, is very core to their identity. Um, so what is, you know, how do we describe the role of violence here within the Proud Boys sort of identity and sort of the way they go out into the world? Violence and provocation are part of their charter. And everything from even the first creed, I'm a proud Western chauvinist who refuses to apologize to, uh, for creating the modern world. That is an aggressive posture that is looking for confrontation. The serial beaten, it, it's, it seems ridiculous. And that's the point, right? Um, like, who would think of 
punching members while they name five breakfast cereals. But internally, Gavin has described this as a form of adrenaline control. And this is how some of them can go, like you see like some of the Proud Boys when they're at these events, they have almost a tireless um, energy when it comes to antagonizing people. And they don't get, you know, triggered in the way that they, you know, hope to trigger others. And part of that is by that, that repeated conditioning, uh, coupled with desensitizing themselves through memes and images and, and other content that, that furthers those in-group, out-group dynamics. So by the time a Proud Boy has attended a rally, he's not seeing the people from the other side as um, someone who may have similar political grievances. You know, he's seeing them as the enemy. And, and that, is, that is one of the features that mark them as an extremist organization. Now, I have to preface it by saying um, Proud Boys were temporarily classified as an extremist organization in 2018, and that has since been rescinded. But if you look at the incidents that I've been tracking, if you see the incidents that they're targeting, they're co-attending, and they're organizing themselves, their the violence and their ideology becomes much clearer. So I would say that deliberate provocation and violence are a part of their charter and one of the defining features of the group. So I want to, maybe this is nitpicking, but they're, the violence that they're participating in seems like very much street violence and provocation, but not, is, is there a larger goal? Is there, do they have their eyes on, you know, genocide or mass violence or revolution? Or is it just really, you know, as, as you kind of pointed out, it's just violence as a, as a type of provocation, as a type of baiting somebody into reacting and then creating a, a narrative, a false narrative around that. So the, the false narrative is the crypto-fascist element by framing themselves as the victim of any situation they encounter. Um, but when it comes to describing them as a fascist organization uh, that's advancing a fascist agenda, um, that's going to require a little bit more elaboration. So fa- the terms fascism and Marxism or fascist and Marxist are often thrown out as ad hominem attacks against anyone that you don't agree with. Um, but I'd like to go more concrete and, and use Paxton's definition of fascism. So fascism may be defined as a form of political behavior marked by obsessive preoccupation with community decline, humiliation, or victimhood, and by compensatory cults of unity, energy, and purity, in which a mass-based party of committed nationalist militants working in uneasy but effective collaboration with traditional beliefs abandons democratic liberties and pursues with redemptive violence and without ethical or legal constraints, goals of internal cleansing and external expansion. Proud Boys meet that definition by who they've identified as their enemies, the policies that they support, their stance on immigration, their championing of ICE, uh, and the the shared goal of designating anti-fascists as a terrorist organization. So that, that's kind of interesting because 
you kind of touched on the politics of it. They agree with ICE. They were designated as an extremist organization. They're not designated. Um, where do we see the Proud Boys in relationship to to Matt, to sort of Trump himself and then to the larger, broader idea of MAGA or Make America Great Again? Is it Do you find that the Proud Boys are very pro-Trump or do they sort of, you know, reject Trump and have their sort of own identity and own relationship to make America great again, or, you know, describe the, the proud boys as a sort of political organization where, where do they fit in our polity and in relationship to, you know, Trump, the Republican party, you know, what have you. So this is an election year and Proud Boys are going to return to the thing that gave them power. Remember they formed in 2016 during Trump's presidential campaign. They are very, very pro-Trump and they're conscious of their manipulation. So they can navigate um, much better than some of the other groups because of optics. Um, So while presenting publicly as, you know, libertarian and anti-establishment, Proud Boys also position themselves closely to U.S. conservative elite. Uh, While advocating for limited government, they attempt to act as paramilitary extensions of the police. And, you know, while publicly identifying as free speech absolutists, they attempt to police the speech of others through frivolous litigation, harassment, and in some cases, organized intimidation. Um, So they can navigate better than most And there are many discrepancies between how they identify themselves and their overt behavior, which, um, which can tell you more about their political agenda. That's interesting. And I'm sort of curious, like they're so violent and they, as you pointed out, they use the tools of harassment, intimidation. How do you, counter this like it it might like you you kind of in our in our dms and and sort of through research you kind of pointed out that you know uh you've used counter speech before you've you know you've on university of nevada reno you've kind of participated in counter speech but when it comes to organizations like this how do you how do you as an individual researcher engage this and sort of counter the rhetoric their rhetoric is it you know just a matter of just creating a counter message or is there sort of more you know in depth you know in this strategy what i do i think is consistent with gordon alport's contact hypothesis when proud boys encounter me and i'm not the angry feminist sjw they have in mind when they think of most academic women Um, they're more likely to encounter information. Of course, I've built on like trust and rapport as well with members. Um, But when it comes to dealing with bad faith actors, the way you engage with them is very important. Um, For example, when Charlie Kirk came to my university, they hired me to help them with preventative messaging. Um, and one of the things I did was I used, you know, Charlie Kirk when he, I'm not sure if you're familiar with like the way he gives his speeches, but he'll, 
he'll say there's a certain amount of time reserved for people after the speech to ask him questions. Um, so if anybody interrupts him while he's giving his speech, it just furthers his narrative that, you know, the liberals and leftists are intolerant and can't even wait to the end to properly engage. Um, so I basically, in, in the case of Charlie Kirk's culture war event, engaged with him in the way that he allowed. And I asked him to probe discrepancies himself. I, I said, Charlie Kirk, you know, uh, without calling you a white nationalist or without calling you a white supremacist, um, why do you think, or what is it about your organization that makes actual white nationalists and actual white supremacists and actual ethno-nationalists feel like they're welcome. Um, and so he kind of returned to saying, you know, the, but I have black friends approach. <laughs> and those moments are really great for counter narratives because I will never, like you and me will never convince someone like Charlie Kirk to, uh, renounce their, their ways or adopt a different approach. But there are people in that audience who might be on the fence about him or who might be considering uh, becoming a member of Turning Point USA who are listening. So when you speak to bad faith actors or you try to engage with them, the best things that you can do are um, extensive research beforehand and also speak to them with the intent of influencing their audience. Um, a lot of academics are very good at, um, you know, kind of preaching to the choir, which is fine because we all need to inform each other. We're a community as well. Um, but I feel like scholars who study extremism, particularly women who are studying the gender dynamics of radicalization, are uniquely suited to uh, disseminate counter narratives and engage in a way that actually reduces the efficacy of those narratives. That's interesting. You touched on something that is, I've kind of seen it actually play out in real life. That is calling somebody a white nationalist or white supremacist immediately, you know, kind of destroys the message. Like you, you kind of, you know, causes people to harden themselves and say, well, no, I'm not a white nationalist, white supremacist. So I, I kind of want to, as an analyst for you to pick that apart, like why, why is that label white nationalist, white supremacist so problematic when included in counter messaging? You know, um, is it, is it something just to be avoided and sort of, as you pointed out, go after an audience and sort of influence them in, in another way? Or, you know, how do, how do we work around or sort of engage that label of white supremacist, white nationalist when it comes to counter messaging? So it's important to meet people where they're at. And with someone who's a very sophisticated, bad faith actor who will spin your content no matter what you do, it's probably best not to engage. Um, one example of excellent uh, counter narratives um, was when C.V. Vitolo Haddad spoke with Andy No, uh, And like, I don't really think there was anyone that could have done it better. Um, they basically very eloquently, very succinctly dismantled their arguments. And then kind of towards the end, 
it became more of a conversation where they were engaging with each other and talking about societal issues together. Um, so when you say white supremacist or ethno-nationalist or any of these terms, um, it's important to know your audience and know the people that you are engaging with. So your, uh, your average person who maybe like a year or two ago would have been very content to say um, all lives matter in response to black lives matter. Um, if you operate on the assumption that they don't even know the ways that they're reacting defensively and say like, I'm not sure if you're aware what this phrasing does, but here's what this does. And here's why people get upset. There are a certain percentage of people who would say, Oh, I see where you're coming from. Right. But there are some people who are fully aware that they are racist and they are unapologetic and, and they embrace that who uh, will use those terms uh, not to engage, but to, you know, maximize the suffering of, of the people most likely to be harmed by police brutality. Um, so knowing your audience is really important and speaking to them as if they really don't know the origins of where they're coming from. You're not, they're not necessarily patronizing them by saying that, but if somebody uses a term um, that is problematic, um, some of the reactions on, on the left are to, um, engage in kind of like woke scolding. I don't know if you've heard that term. No, I'm not familiar with that. Woke <laughs> okay. Um, so well, I, I would say woke scolding is different from like being canceled or cancel culture because cancel culture is something that the far right use primarily, um, to further their own victimhood narratives. Um, but woke scolding is is kind of like a a lazy form of social justice. Like th there's putting pressure on people to affect change, and then there's shutting down any possibility of engagement with someone who may have shared something without knowing the significance of what they were doing and what it meant. Um, so when you call someone racist or white supremacist or white nationalist, you know, people tend to, to shut down because no one wants to be perceived that way. Right. Um, at least publicly. <laughs> um, so it's really, like, it's really important to meet people where they're at and, and really know who you're talking to. Like, are you talking to someone who is largely unaware and most likely to be um, recruited into movements like Proud Boys, where they kind of groom them further? Or are they completely conscious of their manipulations? And are they intent on framing themselves as victims, no matter what you say? So if you are talking with someone who is willing to engage, but is largely uninformed, like fill that knowledge gap for them, be that person that says like, I'm not sure if you're aware, you know, give them a chance to, to save face. Um, because some people might not largely like be aware of what they're doing and do something, have the reaction to what they're doing and then get radicalized further because their experience is consistent with the narratives the far right use to recruit them further. So when they say intolerant SJW or they say all that, don't, 
you know, don't give them any more recruitment fodder by being that. Like, if you really want to win in this rhetorical space, you have to stand your ground and engage with them and get them to confront the discrepancies, get them to expose their own faulty logic. Because when you do that, you can convert their audiences and, and you can help prevent further instances of recruitment. It might not be an immediate thing. Someone can watch a YouTube video where somebody, you know, destroys uh, a far right speaker in a debate. And then, you know, kind of months later, after that seed's been planted, decide to leave. Um, so I just feel kind of frustrated with how people tend to engage sometimes. Um, I feel like you need experience, you need to do your research. Um, but there's always a way that you can kind of bridge that gap and pull some of the people on the fridges, maybe more close, uh, closer to the mainstream. So how do you like, so you, you're also a consultant. And so I'm sort of kind of, I'm curious, like you seem very, you're very good at sort of target audience analysis and very sort of calm. And you, you obviously can see through sort of the tactics that are being used and strategy, but how do you, for an average person, how do you sort of communicate to them? Like, this is what the proud boys are doing. These are what sort of these groups are. They're purposefully sort of provocating and sort of pushing you into reacting. Like, what do you, how do you approach that as a sort of training and sort of like educational thing? Like pointing out, like when you're being trolled, the troll actually wants you to react so they have a narrative edge. So they either feeds into the narrative of victimhood or, you know, they edit a video and make you look bad. How does that, how do you approach that? How do you sort of work with and train potential victims or potential targets even? So I am very happy that my university hired me last year to consult with them and, uh, develop some of their counter narrative efforts, which is great to see on campus because how, how often do you actually get to see, you know, uh, countering violent extremism concepts applied to real world situations. It's pretty cool. Um, but so they hired me and, uh, I met with, uh, one of my favorite professors, Todd Feltz, and I came to him with some of my ideas and he wound up, you know, just very, generously uh, offering their um, their videography services. Uh, and we created this public service style announcement before Charlie Kirk's event. Uh, and we didn't really name him explicitly. We wanted to talk more broadly about what far-right provocateurs do. Um, so that three-minute um, public service style announcement listed, you know, three things that you should know when engaging with controversial speakers. Um, and I thought it was, in, I was very, very proud to be a part of that um, because some people just feel really hopeless right now. Like they can't do anything and giving people tools that they can apply in life. Like what is Darvo? What is the, um, the Gish Gallup? What, uh, what is deliberate provocation? Uh, and, if you can resist this, if you can recognize these tactics for what they are, you not only gain that advantage, but you can help prevent further instances of recruitment. Because when you don't allow them to 
um, you know, uncharitably interpret what you say, you, you tend to, what's the word? You don't like, you don't get to become the, the liberal straw men that they use to recruit members. If that makes sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, so I want to maybe switch footing a bit and attend to this idea of what is the future of the Proud Boys? What do you see as like future in the sense of where do you see the group ending up in 2021? Where do you see, do you see them sort of accomplishing their goals? What does that future look like for the Proud Boys? Well, based on my ethnographic research and the incident tracking data I've collected, I suspect that they'll either be absorbed into the GOP or form coalitions with other white nationalist groups. Uh, You know, right now we're in the middle of multiple intersecting crises, but this is also an election year, so they're going to return the thing that gave them power. Uh, And if Trump wins, Proud Boys are going to feel emboldened to continue their harassment, intimidation, and campaigns of violence. Uh, And if he loses, it's likely they'll be part of the insurgent groups that mobilize to further violent action. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I just want everybody to get on my level already and like understand what's going on. <laughs> right. um, so before we finish, um, so today's Father's Day. Um, so on this Father's Day, what, what do you want to tell the Proud Boys today? What, what is your message to them on sort of the day of celebrating men or fathers or however you want to take this day? Right. Um, so... Many men join the Proud Boys through their, their techno parents, you know, the Gavin McInneses, the Trumps, the Stephen Molyneux, the Jordan Petersons. But a real father figure imposes limitations. A real father figure sets boundaries. You know, a real father leads by example to show their son how to be in the world. Uh, and I think it's really important to look for role models who exude these positive masculine traits you know, the men who stand upright and genuinely like women, you know, because if you're standing up as a man, you don't necessarily feel threatened by them, you know, and, and when you look at, you know, positive masculine energy, like, or like what the ideal man is, like, who is the ideal man, you know, because if you look around many happily married men or men in relationships aren't the most attractive. It's really the men who've taken time to develop themselves. You know, they make their wives and their girlfriends happy by just who they are and not by demanding how a woman should be. Um, So in general, like on Father's Day, everyone might have different experiences of, you know, what their father was to them. Um, Some might need to be kind of the the parental fatherly figure they never had growing up. Um, But ultimately, Proud Boys 
need to sit with the discomfort that women make them feel and work on developing themselves because the more that they develop themselves as human beings, the more attractive they become to the women they hope to get. But the more that they engage in this destructive behavior, the less likely it is people will actually want to be with them. I mean, they recently started a dating website and and got laughed off of Twitter and other platforms for it, you know, because society kind of recognizes the way that they're engaging. It's, it's not what grownups do. Right. Um, So I kind of want to balance care and accountability here. Like I can understand the allure of performing masculinity. Uh, I can understand the allure of adopting rigid gender roles, perhaps to compensate for not really having a strong father figure growing up. Um, But getting back to what a real father is, you know, they impose limitations, they set boundaries and they lead by example. So hopefully they can look to men who do that and not men who enable the very worst behavior in them to persist. Awesome. Um, So with that, uh, this was my guest today with Samantha Kuttner. Um, Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Of course.